Hold on, let me make sure. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Delicious things to eat. The popcorn can't be beat. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Double Feature Podcast, where every week me and David talk about two films that one may be better, one may be worse. Sometimes they're both pretty good, and sometimes they're both terrible. I'm your host, Dean, joined by the other D and D in this Decalogue of Films, David. How you doing? And also, what does Decalogue mean? Uh, good question. I'm trying not to think about uh, exhausting things right now it's been an exhausting mental week for i think everybody for everyone out there um but i i am thankful that we get to sit down this week with these two films which are you know i think we we write them rightly labeled them comfort films yeah because you know we've had a pretty trying couple of days here in uh, the good old us of a or around the world i'm sure people have been kind of Everybody's been having a stressful week. Yeah, noticing what's going on. Yeah, so, and I think the best thing to do after a really stressful time is to sit down and watch a a movie that kind of lightens the mood. Because that's been the theme this whole month is we talk about, you know, politics, you know, politics where it's taken seriously, politics where it's kind of being poking fun of. Yeah. But sometimes you just need a, a film where it's like, I need to escape from the reality of, the dumpster fire I live in and watch something fun, which is what Absolutely. we have here. Yeah. What we have here is a couple of fantasy films in the form of the princess bride and, and the other film. Yeah. The other film of this pairing, um, which will be Willow, but Dean and I certainly are foreshadowing a little bit when we say that. Yeah. And you know how these things usually, usually go. Cause I, on more than one occasion, we've started thinking one film is better and after some pretty deep conversation, we kind of flip at the end. I don't think that's going to happen this week. No, I think it's going to be cut and dry. We know exactly what's going on. Yeah, but both these films do have merits, and both of them kind of deserve to be a little a little talking about. And some more than others. Some certainly. more than others. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, um, uh, but before we get any further, David, let's do your thing. You're You're the writer. Give us the log lines. Tell us what these movies are about. Give us the short and sweet. Right. So the log lines for these movies this week. For Willow, a wannabe wizard dwarf, travels across the wastes to return the prodigal princess to her kingdom. And for the princess bride, a lowly farmer saves his true love from marrying a politically corrupt prince. We have some Game of Thrones. We have some Lord of the Rings. Sounding good. Sounding good. Yeah. You know, it's funny you say the Game of Thrones thing. You pointed that out earlier. And that was also something I didn't even really notice until we started uh, talking about it. And maybe should we save the best for last? Or do you want to dig right into it? Okay. I think we should probably talk about Willow first before okay. we talk about Princess Bride. For the sole reason of... I, I think I know we have a lot more to talk about with Princess Bride, but Willow does... 
Willow deserves to be talked about. I don't know if I'm the only person who enjoyed Willow as a kid, but I might have been the only kid who enjoyed Willow as a kid, because everyone else I talk about says they hated that movie. You know, Dean, you very well might be. Um, listen, Ooh, uh, monsters. monsters. So this everywhere. was actually my first time watching Willow, and mm. uh, I'm glad it was, because uh, it's, a, it's a charming movie, certainly. I, I like Val Kilmer. I like Warwick Davis. You know, he's great. Yeah. Um, Ron, I was interested. I know this was a Ron Howard movie as well. I've been trying. I've been thinking I should probably watch more of like director films, you know, of famous directors and kind of learn a little bit more about style and those kinds of things. But mm. what's interesting to me upon uh, first thinking about this film is this feels a lot like Ron Howard was trying to be steven spielberg in some way even though i know that chronologically that doesn't make a whole lot of sense yeah no i get what you mean because what is it um so i know steven spielberg's big like his first hit was jaws right and then i think after yeah. that it was like was the close encounters of the third kind and then et let's see here i'll look up his uh filmography real quick so that we can get a handle on it but yeah i think jaws could probably be if not his first feature uh be credited as his first you know the, the, um, that was his his business card when he jumped onto the scene being like hey guys i'm steven spielberg i made yeah. this he had plenty of plenty to do in um tv directing for many years throughout the 60s and 70s mm -hmm. um and then yeah i think jaw the sugarland express is actually uh credited as as his first like feature film well i just want to know what did he when did he make et was that 81 um yeah so et was 82 okay. Raiders of the lost ark was 81 which uh we, we've, we've done before in our very first episode but yeah it was jaws close encounters of the third kind um 1941 which nobody remembers uh raiders of the lost ark which everyone remembers yeah, absolutely it's uh we've started this series with two of what are now known as the greatest blockbusters uh, of all time ever. uh then it was et um then he did temple of doom and then it started to kind of evolve from there uh, so but the, the reason i bring it up is because i think you make a good point because um this feels like a movie steven spielberg would have made but at the point in his career when uh, Willow was made, he hadn't made E.T. yet, which basically solidified him as the family director, right? The, you know, the heart movies. Because that's, like, what he made, basically makes now, is movies about, like, oh, the family, heart, you know, whimsy and shit like that. Yeah, I pulled up his uh, filmography earlier, and I know that either it was just before this or just after this that he did Backdraft which is the film I always uh, attribute to Ron Howard uh, when I think about him. You know, he's like the, uh, especially because there was that universal backlot attraction oh, yeah. in which, you know, he's sitting there. And then that was the first time I learned that Ron Howard was a ginger. Um, Made you feel good, right? You know, Ron uh, Howard yeah. has no soul. That's why he makes the movies. Yeah, that's why he's in Hollywood. Yeah, um, yeah so actually it was uh, Willow. Just before this, he had done cocoon and gung-ho which Ooh. you know 
Okay. I don't know what that's all about. And then Parenthood, which is a classic comedy. And um, Backdraft then came right after that. Okay. So, a Kurt Russell movie, by the way, so we're going to have to do that eventually. I do, do like me some Kurt Russell. Yeah. But yeah, so... Because this movie feels like it's... um. A very apparent kids movie, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I would say so. But there's some stuff in there that is just a little weird, right? Cause okay. So I'll I'll just give you I'll just do my little spiel on, on Willow real quick and just tell me when I, I'm going off the rails a little bit. So I watched this movie and first of all, I was like, okay, the story's pretty basic it's kind of like a hero's journey going on uh and then it's like oh it's like this kind of like average kids movie and then i started realizing that there's a bunch of effects in there there's a bunch of money behind this apparently george lucas was the the writer and like did the producing and ilm did a bunch of the effects and it got to the point where it looked like willow like it looked like this movie had had a bunch of money and it was punching above its weight class like every scene like, all these scenes that were supposed to be, like, kind of, like, quiet, whimsy kind of thing. It was like, oh, it's a nice fantasy land. And it just, like, punched way above its weight class. I, I The best one is that I can think of is the um, the fight scene where it's, like, the giant three-headed monster. That, no, it's the two-headed monster in the castle where it's all the fires going on and there's, a bunch, and like, a bunch of extras and suits of armor. Yeah, this and the claymation dragon, nonetheless, that I was particularly, like... I know this was like 1988, correct? Um, no, I think this was 1980. No, was, yeah, because no, yeah. oh no, no, it was 88. Um, yeah, so um, 88. Okay. Uh, that's obviously before uh, computer graphics. Like that was wasn't really solidified until Jurassic Park. Um, yeah, I get that they weren't going to be able to do something that looked like crazy good, but. I was also kind of fascinated by the fact that they would try... Because I can't think of a fantasy film before this that really does... Like, large-scale monster in it. Like, you, Oh, um... Ray Harryhausen, King Kong... Right, and, and those Godzilla. movies use claymation in that, that way. But, like, the way they did it in this felt, like, just... Off. It was either supposed to be CGI, or, and it was just too early for them to actually do anything about that. Or like the claymation should have been a little bit more noticeable. It, it's like there's this weird uncanny valley going on with it to go on this, you know, continuing, uh, what would you call it? A, a An issue on this podcast is the uncanny valley of, of special effects. Yeah. Like, it all, okay. So we talked about Time right. Bandits before um, for a Terry Gilliam episode. And we spent like 10 minutes talking about the giant effect right. in that in that film where it's the giant he's wearing the the um the ship on his head and he's walking out of the water and we talked so long about it it just looked real it looked good it you can tell it was just some forced perspective but you bought yeah. right into it this movie it's like i want to buy into it cuz i'm a fantasy nerd and i you know i'm i'm trying to drink the Kool-Aid but there's little things like that that just kind of pull me out of it that and it's the brown oh my god the french fairies yeah uh <laughs> oh you, i just you had like, an issue with those it's, ones? it's another you know these movies always make their 
they have to have comic relief somewhere. I get it. And it's just odd to me that they had to add these, like, I think this is actually a good segue into one of my biggest problems with the film and kind of what you were mentioning earlier, where it's like, it feels like the plot is a little slapdashed. It, you, you know, yeah. not to already get into comparisons, but the Princess Pride, we all know, has one of the, is, well, one of the greatest stories ever told, period. Um, yeah, <laughs> period, and full stop. Citizen Kane takes We'll that talk back. about it later, but it does that because Goldwyn is a master of finding meaning in action. And of course, mm-hmm. he, he's aided by parody in that, but this doesn't have parody. This is supposed to be, you know, the classic fantasy ger- hero's journey. And it's it's completely sincere. Yeah, and I think there's, there's it's, it's no... almost a sincere to a fault where some of the antics the characters get into, even though that there's there's moments where they poke fun at it, such as when Willow is trying to cast his spell and um, oh I can't remember the the stupid sugar uh, sugar squirrel or whatever it is name. Um, that at that mm. point had turned into a crow, I believe. Uh, yeah, yeah. Val Kilmer makes like a joke where it's like, uh, after the the sorceress mentions that she'll turn into a beautiful girl, he's like, concentrate, Willow. And I'm like, okay. Uh, Mad Mardigan's a horn dog, and that's all I really got out of that. <laughs> Whereas like the the, the humor yeah. and things like the Princess Bride uses parody to advantage it's its advantage and even still is much more clever than just like you know mm-hmm. the most obvious joke on the page and i just i, I or uh, right after this too there's the scene where it's like they make the escape from the base camp in the himalayas or wherever they are and they sled down which is kind of a classic you know getaway trope you make your snow sled getaway and then Kilmer turns into, mm-hmm. he turns into a stupid fucking snowball. Like, <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. There's, it, it's just like for me at times, I wanted to take it seriously, and I, I even will say something toward the end of the movie actually was very clever, but everything else is just kind of like obvious. You had you you had some pretty distinct issues with like the story and how the story yeah, set okay. up and paid and off set up of and pay off is an interesting way to put it because like think about the army too that like when they first meet Mad Bardigan and he's in this you know um, bird, bird cage, cage over the valley of a thousand deaths or whatever that he's supposed to be uh, the, the army passes that has um, oh I don't know what the warrior's name is but um you know, it's like his his enemy friend from a past war, and that is really only done so that they can come into battle at the end of the movie. Like, there's not really a whole other reason why the army would be there, um, other than some like very basic foreshadowing. You know, it's it's coincidental to a fault. Yeah. Well, so you. I did tell you you I mentioned earlier George Lucas wrote this script right oh, and it's very that hero's makes a journey lot of sense. kind of thing. <laughs> I did not know that. Right. Okay. So yeah. So like I I know you're saying you're like oh issue with setup payoff all this other stuff. So I'll I think I'm not gonna 
going to break anyone's hearts when I tell people that George Lucas is not a very good writer? Mm -hmm. Am I, am I, I going to break anyone's heart with cast. that? Huh. You don't say. So people keep going back to like, well, he wrote Star Wars. He wrote American Graffiti. You know, Star Wars is one of the you know, greatest films of all time, yada, yada, yada. But what people kind of forget is that George Lucas wrote the basic, like, he, he wrote the plot to Star Wars, the basic stuff of Star Wars. But he basically did all of that yeah. movie by committee. He only directed the first Star Wars and most of the writing he... He went over to people and be like, hey, this is the script I have. You know, do you have any notes? And he basically just absorbed notes from everyone yeah. around him. And that's common. It's just that I think then that those notes end up really making that movie. And it's funny that you say it like that, too, because like Star Wars is actually a much it's like much the opposite of this, where the plot isn't coincidental. There's purpose the entire time. Um, yeah, yeah, like you you might be able to say that it's that the hero's journey is always coincidental to a fault and that why would luke skywalker happen to be the perfect guy but that's kind of the point of the hero's journey is that you're, you're supposed to be writing about a character who's perfect for the journey which is an interest another interesting thing that i i think about when i compare those two movies because really when you think about it luke has zero character development brought up that makes him the perfect pilot to go out and destroy the Death Star. Whereas, yeah, whereas Not Warwick really, Davis, yeah. Davis' character Willow in this movie, it's actually his character set up really well in the whole wizard thing where he's like a, a common street performer performing magic tricks and he wants to become like the next wizard of his town. And like that's that's actually a really good setup that's then forgotten about until the very end of the movie. Like it's really, I think that's really what bugs me is that the character never shows up in a lot of the plot. Yeah, yeah, it feels like it feels like Willow is a character we only we're only following just so we can go to like the next like yeah. set piece. It this movie feels like we're going from set piece to set piece, and the plot only exists so people so George Lucas so george lucas can like flex or is like so crew. that val kilmer can just kind of become this the de facto star which is it's sad because it's like i yeah. really think that so many of the plot points that end up happening in the movie could be solved by warwick davis like going through this character development of like okay let's because obviously let's let's reveal the end as it is the end is good because he finally gets to use his you know street magic to become the perfect wizard right and that's yeah. really good character development is that you end up, you, you know, the ending is in the beginning and you use the entirety of your character after him learning what he needs to complete himself to solve the ending. And he's, and he's finding the big, bad, evil, like queen, witch person, and he's able to outsmart her. He can't like beat her in a game of like one-on-one -on -one combat, but he can outsmart her. And it's like, Oh, Willow's been shown to be clever this whole time. And it, it's yeah, a payoff for the character. It's, then it's like, that's the only time really Willow gets to do that because, okay, maybe in like then to preparing for the battle, he finally gets to do something that again, calls back to his, his village life where, you know, he mentions that the moles would tunnel under the garden or whatever. And that's how they're going to get into the castle. But like, okay, he goes to the, he, 
Okay, here's something because maybe I completely missed it. When he leaves, like the rest of the party at the beginning of the the dwarves who are traveling to return the child, I didn't even catch that. Why does mm-hmm. he? Why does he separate from them? At the at the very beginning. Wait, no, after they meet Matt they Mardigan? Matt Mardigan. It's yeah. So it's they're in the party Mardigan. with like the wizard and um, that one dwarf that's always clowning on him and. Uh, they they separate from each other. Uh, Willow and Migosh, I think his name is, to go a different way, or like they stay someplace uh, when they finally see Matt Mardigan. And I, I... oh, okay, I I think I remember. I think I remember. But um, yeah. first, can I ask you a favor? C- can you turn your camera off and then back on yeah. because you're frozen on my screen? You've been for like twenty that. minutes. Uh, okay, there we go. There we go. It works perfect now. But yeah, where was I? Yeah, so, uh, yeah, no, I remember, I remember, I remember. So, what it happens is it's, so it's like the scene where they meet Matt Mardigan and they're like, oh, we're going to give the baby over to a, a human because that's like the whole reason they're going out. And then Willow's like, I can't leave, you know, the baby with this person because he's a scumbag and everybody else is like, this is job accomplished. Deuces. Oh, so they and they all the fail. Okay. And Willow wants to make sure, sh- yeah, and Willow wants to make right. sure the baby's okay, kind of. Like, it's the whole thing where he's just like, oh, I'm, you know, good-natured, you know, person. I'm going to make sure the baby's okay. And they're just like, hey, our job was just to leave it with a human, which, by the way, is a very strange um, plan. Just I kind of get any it old because human. maybe that then sets up, like, the heart of the character. There's an, this is another interesting thing, not to continually elbow princess bride back into this conversation but this is another thing that that movie really pointed out to me is that plot works best for maybe at least these movies when you start with the simplest conflict and then work your way up um i think some movies yeah. can blow their load too early or even that's like a conflict can seem a little bit too complicated and then a lull in the movie forms because the conflict gets a little too simple before the climax um um i mean i okay another example is uh was it what's the second of the new star wars trilogy last jedi yeah last jedi so in last jedi we have the thing where they set up the the conflict oh the ship's basically just dragging on or whatever and we need to find a way to escape the empire as they're chasing chasing after us and then it yeah, and then it cuts to them playing around in a casino and all this other plot stuff for like 40 minutes before we get back to the main reason yeah. the movie started. And, like, I don't think Willow has that sin. It does a little bit right? because I think Cause... it suffers from... Okay, like, I, I kept track of it while I was watching that sequence when they're, like, sitting there with Mad Mardigan. There's, like, three separate scenes, quote-unquote, that happen, but they're in, still in the same location. And that it, it's not as big of a sin as Last Jedi. You're you're right because that happens over the course of like forty five minutes to an hour, in that movie. This only happens over the course of like fifteen, yeah. maybe twenty ish minutes. But it's still too long to just be in one place, especially on a road movie. You know, because that's what these are. Is mm-hmm. they're just fantastical road movies. You got to keep this thing going. You can't stick in one spot, or else it's just gonna yeah. start to feel stale and like you haven't done enough in the movie. 
you know what this movie reminds me of? And it's the easiest. Oh, this reminds yeah. me of another movie. Get it's, Certainly, it reminds yeah. me of Lord of the Rings. It's like right. It's like so the Lord not of the... to be kind of facetious, but the children's version of Lord of the Rings. <laughs> you know, both in maturity yeah, and kind of requirement. Yeah, so it's like, because in Lord of the Rings, you know, that those movies are long. They are like long as sin, but they are not boring. Like, you know, oh, there's chunks in the middle where they're just traveling, but there's, there's a purpose and the set pieces are interesting enough and characters are fun enough and you're just going along for the ride and you're digging it. In this, like, I know those, I know what those 20 minutes you're talking about are, and it almost feels like you could trim, you could probably drop a, a full scene from this movie and trim a little bit off of the back end, and you can get this movie, like, on a pretty tight, yeah. like, 90 minutes. How, how long is this movie? Is this, this movie's two hours, this movie's two hours long. You can, you can definitely shave this movie down to being in the in like the 90 minute range or at least the like 100 minute range you can, you can trim some stuff out yeah of this and a little it's bit like of it, it just it. left me wondering when they were sitting there with this human that's in a cage i was like well, wait just get him out of the cage and move on why are we why are we not doing that you know and then they just sat there and then nothing happened and then the army passed and nothing happened and it was like but i want to know where the army's going now <laughs> that's more interesting and sitting here, it's like it was just odd the way that panned out. And then, like I, I get it because this movie's supposed to be really easy, right? This is supposed to be like just an easy movie. But you know, watch. you want it's like, but it's it's supposed to be escapist as well, and it's not really escapist to keep the audience's attention. I'm not saying do anything like you know wildly complicated as if this is like the prestige or something, but where there is two Warwick Davises the whole time. And the baby was just a decoy or something. I don't know, but there's, there's two Warwick Davises. There's three mad Martykins, you know, the, there's yeah. infinite brownies. We're and in it's infinite like, time uh, yeah. Loops. And it's like, well, it feels like they were infinite brownies. That's for sure. Uh, <laughs> I, I did have issues with the brownies. I ain't going to lie. And one of those brownies was unusual suspects, by yeah, the way. I mean, I, know. it's actually kind of interesting. I didn't realize that Inigo Montoya was, um, a, yeah, Gideon from Gideon Criminal from Minds. Until Criminal Minds. Watched through and I was like, holy shit, I love the guy. <laughs> no wonder I did. <laughs> right? Um, but yeah, I, 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 I guess we're, you know, it does feel a little bit stale that we're harping on about the plot and maybe it's ironic that we're doing so. One of the other things that I, I do want to bring up about this movie that I'm fascinated by is so like when you write this script right are you writing it and I do not mean this in, in any way other than like face value I'm curious about it do you write it with mm -hmm. like little people in mind to play the parts so that's actually a good point um so i did mention george lucas wrote this script he wrote it specifically for warwick oh. davis specifically with him in mind because i think warwick davis was one of the ewoks oh um in return of the jedi that would make complete I think. sense 
Like, yeah, and I think they met on set, and George Lucas was like, oh, wow, you're, like, really nice, you're charismatic, like, I think you there's something in this for you. And this movie kind of sat in a little bit of development hell for a couple of years, and then he finally got it made, and he had Ron, he got it written, you know, produced it, and Ron Howard came on to direct it. Um, actually, I'm now I'm curious because I'm because Warwick Davis is one of those actors where you know he's been type he was typecasted for a large majority yeah. of his career. Yeah. But then there's a point where you're like, oh wait, he's just been in like everything. Yeah, he's been all over the place. That's for he, sure. But the man's worked consistently since the since the 1980s. Yeah, yeah. Actually, he was the main um, Ewok oh, in Return of the okay. Jedi. He was Wicket, the main. That's the main high Ewok. And that is high praise. Also, I think he was only 18 when he did Willow. He's yeah my memory serves so he was probably only like 15 or 6 he was only he, like 15 he was super Jedi baby faced in this one uh, like he, his face yeah. looks very almost adolescent in my mind but it, it's I kind of he's a very charming character in this movie so I'll give him that yeah I think it's a thing where I, like I think we should just talk about some of the characters because you can tell that Willow's the main character, but I'm guessing there were producers who were like, no, no, no. Val Kilmer's the main character. Willow's yeah. the guy we have to follow. Because Warwick Davis, he, he exudes a, like, he has charm. You know, he's he's charismatic. He's likable. But then Val Kilmer shows up. And I don't hate, well, sorry, excuse me. I don't hate Val Kilmer in this movie that yawn is very telling about well, your you feelings about the Kilmer. audience. Um, yeah, it's like, I'm trying to find a way to word it. I think it's that he knows the role he's supposed to play, but at the same time, it's Val Kilmer. So the whole time I'm sitting there going, where's an explosion? Where are guns? I'm kind of waiting for this to become a Val Kilmer movie. It doesn't feel like he should be in this movie. So, I think w if this is a Star Wars remake, then Val Kilmer is oh, Han certainly. Solo. That's, right? that's certainly the character that he's trying to play. Is he supposed to be charismatic? He's supposed to be the... They make that... They have that twist in the middle where he like turns Willow and the baby over to the bad guys but it doesn't really track because it just kind of comes out of nowhere he's supposed to play yeah, like the yeah. roguish type you know he's like oh i'm i'm a bad guy i'm a swashbuckler scoundrel kind of kind of character but i have the heart of gold but he doesn't really pull this off i i got a question for you is val kilmer a good actor We'll just open with that. Do you think he is a yeah, good actor? I mean, actor? I think he certainly earned his place in, um, you know, the history. Uh, everybody obviously knows Top Gun, and that's, yeah, it's, yeah, well, that's it's a, Tom a cheese Cruise fest, movie. but still, it's like, you know, it's a, it's also the 1980s, of course it was supposed to be. And, uh, yeah. Batman Forever and Tombstone are good movies, and 
Yeah, he earns his place. Okay. I'll I'll say he is fantastic yeah. in Tombstone. Oh, I will give you that. Tombstone is a masterpiece. But I have always had this feeling that Val Kilmer's one of those actors who just plays Val Kilmer or in like just degrees uh, of Val so Kilmer in every role. On the podcast. Yeah, I certainly agree with you. I'm sorry. Like, okay, it I think it's my problem because I'm I'm a pretentious asshole and I just I've watched a bunch of movies and it's like, oh, you know, we have actors that just kind of morph into their character and they really get into it and they're different but in like I think every you're role. Totally right about it, and though. then it's I mean, like he's not trying he doesn't disappear into the character. It's very on the surface. We kind of are saying it over and over again, but he's very on the surface Val Kimmer. And like, I could see somebody else disappearing into the character a little bit more. Um, I don't know exactly who in 1988 would have been the perfect casting for this movie. Just get Harrison Ford. I think he might be a little bit past this at that point. Yeah. He'd be way past past this. uh, Uber past this. Oh, Wait, just get Johnny Depp. Come on. I, I could Everyone actually see Johnny Depp four years ago. Actually, that was kind of like me just being being half he joking, could, but now I'm thinking about it. Yeah, I mean, Johnny, Johnny Depp, Depp really like good the exact this. opposite, where he could totally disappear into the to a character he's playing, and I think especially for this, like him disappearing into this like charismatic but bumbling you know all-star warrior kind of kind of half badass half clown yeah and i think that's what i was missing from this because kilmer kilmer has introduced or mad mardigan is i'll continue to try and call the character mad mardigan's introduced as like a a fool he's literally sitting inside a bird cage when we meet him and you know his whole arc is yeah he's supposed to prove that he is worthy of being one of the great warriors of his time but I don't know. I was just kind of sitting there going like, I don't really believe anything of this character, you're, you know? Even when he finally got his badass action action sequence, I was still sitting there like, yeah, but why haven't you busted that out till now? <laughs> it, it's one of those things where you follow him through a good chunk of the movie and he's just a jackass. And then when it's time for him to like man up and do something, it yeah. just kind of comes out of nowhere. There's no establishment that he's like this drunken master where he's the whole facade of him being this kind of like bumbling jackass is to underplay his opponent so he can like outdo yeah, you know, them in combat. And it would actually that would make be smart. a lot more sense for him to be introduced as some sort of, oh, I don't know, like he uses his skill for bad intention and then he like learns to use his skill for good intention and then that would be his arc, which would also do the same and show his skill and that he's capable of the skill but then now it's like because of the confidence that is instilled in him for having good intention he's able to actually use and prove himself um i wonder if it would have worked better if mad martigan was part of like a bandit group or whatever and they like kidnapped willow and the kid and then he realized, oh, you have a baby, and they're just going to kill Willow and, like, the baby and just take all their, yeah. their shit. So he, like, lets them go, and it's them having to, like, outrun the bandit troop and also you know save the baby. You know really sad. Kind of thing. Well, or is that too hokey? You know I, really that might sad. be too hokey. We're describing Han Solo. What? 
<laughs> I mean, it's, we are just it's, it's the guy who has the power, but he uses it for bad intention, and then his arc ends in using it for good intention, and he's part of a group of bandits. That's Han Solo. That's who the character is. <laughs> God damn it. Damn you, no George Lucas. I mean, You've ruined it. I don't know. I, I... It, it, okay, but like you've got, you got to admit, this feels like a Star to Wars some extent. movie. Just minus and the sci-fi stuff. Instead of meeting the Emperor at the end, Star Wars, you don't even know there's an Emperor until the second movie. Uh, but even still, it's like, uh, you know... I think that there's merit to the lesson of the movie and there that Willow is still a good character at its core. Um, I, we we got to say some good stuff about this movie or I'll, or I'll feel bad because I did pick this because I was like, oh, it's a good escapist fantasy flick. You know, it's a, and it's a good movie, pair. but it's Don't fun. Don't get me wrong. It's a really good pair for The Princess Bride. A part of me would think to pair it with like a Python film, like Holy Grail. Or maybe something else of um, th- this would also Princess Bride may also go well with Time Bandits or something. But ultimately, I think that those films are too far on the nose of parody or too deep into a specific type of fantasy that they aren't really w- well paired. Whereas Willow and the Princess Bride are ultimately about the same thing. You know, they're they're roughly a hero's journey, and then one is just a little bit more smart about crafting its plot, whereas the other is very, I don't want to say basic, but... It, it's more showy. It's trying to flash, right? Because you can tell the production value of Willow is, is off the hook. Like, they yeah. got, there's money behind it. The sets, like, are Yeah, huge. and I will the say that... Are huge. It's trying to hide the basic plot with yeah. The, I will like, say the that spectacle the, the dragon head exploding was pretty cool. It was pretty badass, but yeah, yeah. I, I still it's it's one of those things where it's like great, those are the fireworks, but where's like the storybook ending that I wanted all along? Which, well, now that I say that that out loud, I do get a storybook ending that I wanted all along in this movie. It's just that the setup for the entire movie before it is like, well, where did this come from all of a sudden? Yeah. yeah, I don't know. Yeah, is is this one of those like I know what you did last summer problems where the movie before the like the last ten minutes is is passable, but no, the last I, ten yeah, minutes I think is it's shit. Reverse problem where it's like the the first ten minutes of this movie are good, the last ten minutes of this movie is good, but it's like the middle hour, hour and ten is just way different and not connecting the two pieces. It, it's it's a road movie where yeah, they lost the roadmap. I think we kind of had the same problem when, again, not to, for some reason, I'm comparing these two movies only because they're a road movie, but because they have zero resemblance otherwise. But when we watched um, Fanboys, yeah, that's Fanboys. what it's called. And that's a road movie that I remember. the setup is very specific and interesting. The, the ending is very... <laughs> specific and interesting uh, bittersweet but like the I middle guess. part of the movie kind of drags at certain points because it doesn't get to the point immediately yeah it's it's playing its gags for too long when we're just like no get us to yeah, the yeah i feel like the there's another thing. movie we you know, watched that suffers bit. from a, a similar problem but i'm 
I don't know. I, I think it's beating a dead. Yeah, it's beating a dead a horse at this point. We have watched a lot of. We've watched forty movies on this podcast before. Is that? It's it's oh, not wow. that many movies, I guess, when you think about it. But because that's one of the things that this podcast has certainly made me realize is there's a lot of movies. But <laughs> um, Willow has certainly been movies. one of them, and I I think we've kind of. Ex- yeah, this horse and, uh, dead. But yeah, okay. Before we go on, I need just say one thing. You think this movie did better okay. than Princess Bride? I'll be, just I'll one be nice. Thing, anything. Um, truthfully, just truthfully, we're not gonna gonna pander because I think there's one thing. One thing that I can think of off the top of my head that this movie did actually better then, than Princess Bride. You know what, Dean? I also have one thing, but how about you say your one thing first so that my one thing doesn't get in the way of your one thing? You, now, you can't think I, of it. I really can't. just, You're I'm just wondering what your one thing yeah, that's is what I because thought. I'm sitting here wondering how the fuck you even came up with something. <laughs> okay. I think the production design in willow is better than princess bride for this reason in princess bride it's very much meant to look like a storybook old school adventure movie robin hood and the castle is passable but you can tell it's it's like a stage everything's supposed to kind of look like it's taking place on a stage whereas willow feels like a more fleshed out like world i'll give you that like the it, I'll give you that. The cinematography yeah. in Willow is superior to Princess Bride. Like, flat flat out, I'll, well, flat out I'll say cinematography, because yeah. some of the location stuff I do in Willow is kind of breathtaking. I mean, you know, there's some very interesting locations where I was like, wow, I wonder where that is in the world. Um, or when I noticed at the end that the closing shot is of the village of dwarves amongst the hills of China, <laughs> for some reason. Um which is interesting yeah. but it's still it's like a it's a very beautiful film i'll give it that um and the princess bride does i noticed too that 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 you get much more lost in the story and then as a result they can kind of it's not that i felt like they cut corners in princess bride but it's like i noticed that they didn't even have to do anything over over the top for the visuals because there, there is, there are yeah. some good visuals and, in Princess Bride, but it's like you know, none of them are taking the spotlight of the film. There's no like take take your breath away and be like, oh my god, that's 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 gore, and you kind of just get absorbed yeah. into the imagery. But I digress because we are are about to just gush on a movie for probably. It's the a it's lot of time. He's waiting for Dean. Don't even apologize. It's whatever he's waiting for. Yeah, but we did get some talk out of Willow, and I, there is merit to the film. But let's talk about Princess Bride right after this. Cool. Dean, I found a great way for us to do something cool and to make a little money on the side. Ah, great. I've been looking for a new place to put my money. What do you got? No investment needed. In fact, it's super easy, and there's creation tools we can use to record our podcast right from the phone or computer. Wait, why would you record a podcast on your phone? You want, no, never mind, never mind. Where do I put my money for this? Uh, I don't need any of your money. 
Uh, we can even get our podcast distributed to big streaming platforms like Spotify and Google Podcasts. Oh, I get it now. I get it now. We're talking big business here. Okay, so you're going to need a lot of money from me. How much money are we talking here? No, no, definitely don't need any of your money. In fact, we can make money from the podcast with no minimum listenership. Okay. Now I think I'm getting what you're going at here. We need to spend money to make money. So we're, we're talking some big gains here. Big gains. No, no, definitely. No, I don't need any of your money. Just all we need to make a podcast right in one place. Okay, okay. So what you're telling me is that you're going to need a pretty big check from me for this podcast. So do I just make it out to cash because it's no problem for me i'll just you know write it up right now no listen dean just head over to anchor.fm and check it out you'll see why anchor is the best place for us to record edit and distribute our podcasts and i definitely do not need any of your money shut up and take my money welcome back ladies and gentlemen to the double feature podcast part two talking the best about part the best part, talking about my <laughs> sister's favorite film of all time, The Princess Bride. Your sister specifically, nobody else. Uh, nobody else. I mean, except every every woman on the planet. Well, everybody on the planet. Right. This really is like, like, if we can quantify, if you're somehow living in a hole and haven't surfaced for... No, what is it now? Probably like 30, 40 years. I think we're in, I think we're about in that four, almost 40 year category. No, we're in that 33 year category. 33 years this movie right. has been out. If so, for some reason you've been in a hole that entire time, um, this is one of the, just like the greatest movies ever put together. This from the script to the acting to the, to the, the whole shebang is just like perfect execution. And yeah, yeah, accurate. I don't know. I could start fanboying over it, but we let's get into some serious conversation about what makes The Princess Bride one of the greatest films ever. Right? Um, like, I because I think it's not going to be a surprise that uh, Rob Reiner's really good at his job. Oh, yeah. Another return director, by the way. Oh, yeah. Returning director, Rob Reiner. Uh, you yeah. used to see him on The American President, but in terms or, of... Well, you will see him on the American oh, president. Oh, you will see him on the American is, president. Yes. Yeah. Well. But I, I'm actually, this is, I'm going to fanboy for a second as a screenwriter. Please. This is our first William Goldman film. And William Goldman is some as a name you're going to hear continuously on this podcast, who is one of the greatest screenwriters to ever live. I have, is he? I've never, I don't actually know what films he's directed. Oh Jesus Christ! Yeah. So I come on, Dean. Look at that list. I uh okay, everyone. So, um, I didn't know him as a screenwriter. I thought he just this was the only movie he ever he ever wrote. And then I looked and oh, Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid, mm-hmm. Marathon Man, All the President's mm. Men, The Stepford yep. Wives, what? Mm. Chaplin, Chaplin. Oh wow, he can keep going uh i yeah yeah i actually actually i can keep going this guy's got some heat misery he wrote the screenplay to misery oh my i'm Ooh. just saying yeah this I'm so just saying uh yeah very very good uh screenwriter yeah he's so 
you mean to tell me that you know who okay so you're you're a man of of a screenwriting class right you're a you love your screenwriters you that that's your that's your jam right yeah that's my that's my bread and butter sorkin or goldman thunderdome rules it's kind of like saying what comes first the chicken or the egg it's obviously the egg it has to be going goldman is that is that just is that the intellectual in you or is that the heart in you no it's literally um i believe it was william goldman that got sorkin uh, his connection to make um uh, a few good men yeah a few good men i was about to say all the president's men similar titles uh but yeah they i think it was goldman that he got in contact with um and then goldman helped him develop the screenplay and eventually got him hooked up with rob reiner developed this so are you telling me that william goldman was the yoda to aaron sorkin's jedi or like luke skywalker and like apprenticed and like trained him in the ways of screenwriting yeah, let me do a loose Google to make sure I have that correctly, but I'm pretty sure I heard that straight from the horse's mouth, you know, from Sorkin. Let's see here. Because that's, that's amazing, because now that I'm thinking about it, we have William Goldman, who's I've just now learned is one of the greatest screenwriters of all time, and Rob Reiner, who honestly might be one of the best directors of the last, like, 40 years. He was definitely probably the best directors from like 1980 to like 19 or like 2000. Yeah. Uh, so the, the the Hollywood or Los Angeles Times uh, quotes this from a article in which Sorkin remembers William Goldman. Um, I'll I'll illustrate it because I think it's a funny little piece. Please. He once called me up to apologize. I'm mortified, he said. Why, what happened? I asked, this being Sorkin. Goldman replies. In a story in today's Hollywood Reporter, he replied, the guy says I had a hand in writing A Few Good Men. I called the editor and set him straight. So that's their connection, is that definitively Goldman had helped Sorkin get A Few Good Men off the ground. Good on him. Yeah. Okay, so that's that's a that's kind of amazing when I yeah, think about you know, it, because that because that just adds to the pedigree of this movie, right? Yeah, and I think it's that what I'm so fascinated by is Goldman is also he he's like has his hands in a lot of pots in the in the film industry. He's also one of the um, gurus behind sid field and the famous book screenplay um, oh yeah and in the foreword he he credits goldman as being you know his master that he learned from um while trying to research and learn the craft of screenwriting and i think it's just that not oftentimes we get to praise screenwriters for the work they do and the, that they're sometimes the real geniuses behind these things and the princess bride you know flat out uh, rob renner again great director but flat out i mean I think we did establish like what is it a few episodes ago that rob reiner might have been one of the best directors of like the last 40 years because that streak is untouchable 
And that's very true. But I, I certainly believe that everything to, to do with why people love this movie ends up finding its way back to the script. And because, um, I mean, we could even run down the line basically real quick. The characters, well, obviously have to come from the script. Yeah. Um, the pieces of dialogue in this movie are genius. Um, and this movie is classic as far as teaching you how to not overdo the dialogue and make it an accessory to the film rather than, you know, dialogue becoming the film. Like a lot of people tend to think it is. Uh, the gags are great, but that comes from the script. Yeah. Uh, the story itself, the arc of these characters is perfectly paced and woven. I mean, you really, it's, it's one of those things where it's like, I, I want to be, I want to break this script down and study it piece by piece to learn from it. Even though at the end of the day, it's, it's a parody film. So it's, you know, there's only so much you can get from it. But Is it a parody film though? I, th- I think it's not necessarily a parody film. Like, you know, the scary movie or yeah, something not, like, not like, like that. kind of like we now know what a parody film is, but it's certainly a parody film in that, it cla- uses the like the classic definition of parody, kind of in the same way that a film like Doctor Strangelove uses parody, is is it's the that the comedy isn't situational, it's making fun of these themes and characters, you know. Well, that's the thing because I think I don't think the Princess Bride is going for parody. Because I think it, I think it's a sincere thing, and there's comedy from the that is comedy in the film. All right, Andre the Giant's funny, and you know the uh, Miracle Max with Billy Crystal is is funny, but I don't know if that's because they're recognizing the tropes of the genre, and uh, making fun of them, or if they're just like these are the tropes of the genre, and we just play into it. it it's yeah, I yeah, yeah. I think that. I think that's definitely more a classic version of parody. Like, I, I like. I think for some reason our, our contemporary uh, views of it have warped the definition so much mm. to the point where it's like, take Scream for example, uh, a film that we've talked about several times, and it, it's that's a parody movie in well, itself. It's because a satire. How, yeah, and and that's how it uses its satire being a form of parody. That's how it uses the tool to subvert the genre which is exactly what this movie is doing is it's using the tool of parody in order to subvert the classic going through the motions fantasy film i.e something like willow yeah Um, because think of even how this movie begins you don't even open on the story itself this is all happening just from a grandpa you know a schlubby old grandpa reading a story to a sick kid played by Columbo himself, Peter Falk, and yeah. I'll again returning actor <laughs> by the way, returning yeah, actor true, from Dead. and I love Peter Falk. I I love Columbo. Like that, he is the master of the schlub. Yeah, oh, so good. And he's talking to Fred Savage, who was every ten-year-old suburban white kid. You yeah, know, if you didn't know, and you know, this is another thing that I really love is that 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 dynamic that the movie operates in the vehicle for the whole thing it's like almost it, it does and ultimately why i really think it's parody is that they even 
almost break the fourth wall and poke fun at the way that the audience is getting into this ridiculously set up story. Because think about the first like third of this film, really. Is it some summary of what the char- of like the two main characters and they're kind of, you know, not necessarily by the books, but it's very, you know, run of the mill love story. It, it's um it it opens like a fairy tale, you know. Yeah. Once upon a and... time in this far off land there was these two kids and they fell in love and da 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 da. Yeah, and then, you know, the the first three opponents per se that we run into after like the, the summary is done are very cartoonish. You know, we love our Inigo Montoya, we love our Andre the Giant, but uh <laughs> And then, uh, uh, was it uh, Vizzini? Yeah, he's a very... Never start a land war in Asia? He's a very cartoonish opponent, and it's a very classic version of... Um, this is kind of a more screenwriter's term, but it's like a, f- uh, a false opponent, you mm-hmm. could say, where you think that's like the main antagonist of the movie because, you know... They're the ones who stole buttercup and all that stuff and then yeah but it's like then it's like this is kind of what i meant and when i mentioned earlier that there's a really good way to start simple and get more complicated is that the film peels back like this rhyme of uh conflict that goes deeper and deeper into the world of the story because it's almost it's almost fascinating how you mentioned this you know never start a land war in asia when that's actually what's going on in the rest of the story is they're about to start a land war with false false pretenses and it's like you know that that's actually something about this movie that completely like i was oblivious to until i watched it this time around because yeah. i'm we, we didn't go over you know who who's seen this movie and when but this again my sister's favorite movie she's older than me so i watched this movie basically from birth until now it's but timeless. i just it's it's yeah it's timeless but i haven't seen it in a few years and i put it on and watched this and i realized that um yeah this the crux of this movie why they're kidnapping buttercup is so prince humperdinck can like kill her frame it on his opposing kingdom so he can start a war and i'm like isn't that a plot point in game of thrones yeah, it's and it's all, but it's also under this guise of like idiocy and buffoonish uh, antics. Like you kind that, of miss that because you're kind of wrapped up. And it's like, oh, it's kind of like nice, you know. It's this adventure story, you know. Oh, swashbucklers, and you're like, oh wait, Prince Humperdinck's like, he he's fucking Hitler, dude. Yeah, and it's like very. I don't know. I don't know. I for some reason missing the word for it, but for some reason it reminds me a lot of like gilliam-esque maybe my monty python style of humor where it's very tongue-in-cheek uh there specifically in this particular scene i'm talking about the uh, the scene where you know dread pirate roberts and then Aniga montoya have their sword fight you mean and... the one of the greatest swords fights in cinema history exactly and uh he's climbing up that wall from the sea below and they have this cordial conversation while he's climbing up it's it's hilarious because it's like you get so caught in feeling like you need to take this conflict seriously but then it's two gentlemen you know talking before they have a a very skilled gentlemanly fight also it also gives you everything you need to know about a nigo montoya in that one in that one exchange 
who it, it, the term for him would be the false opponent ally. Same with um, Andre the Giant. Yeah. Because that's the other thing I really like is from the get-go, they set up how the... It's it's noticeable, yet the the false opponents that we receive, you can see exactly how his two henchmen have degrees of him, but are also not as fought-out corrupt as him, because while one of them seems like a buffoon, mm-hmm. but has the courage, and then the other is kind of... Um, has this intellect that you know he he thinks he has i get i guess what well, i'm trying to say well, is that he tries to are... emulate them both but then you know it's very visually obvious that he can't emulate them both so he has to have them around well it's the thing where it's like you know uh andre the giant fezzik what he he is you know strength he's brawn and all this other stuff but he, he's kind um where it's and then you have um anigo who is this skilled swordsman, you know, he's, you know, one of the best killers you can have, but he's honorable, you know, he's a man of honor. And Vizzini, he's incredibly intelligent, Yeah. but he, his thing is, it's not like, oh, he's incredibly intelligent and uses for kindness. He's intelligent, but he's also greedy and he's also, like, angry and he's also, like, um, cocky. Yeah, and I think there's, what I think he's really, the word I was trying to search for is there's vanity in Vizzini that blinds him to his inability to actually be what he thinks he is. Mm-hmm. Because obviously then that's resolved in the whole <laughs> battle of wits scene, uh, which is hilarious. It's good. <laughs> but uh, it, it kind of also is a good way to set up then the actual antagonist of the film, like the vain king who thinks he can get away with political corruption and, and illegal marriage and all these things. Um it's like the it's it's like another way of doing the ending is in the beginning because then it's like we already know what will be the downfall of the king at the end of the story is his vanity will get in the way of realizing you know his goal is is based in fantasy there's no way he's going to be actually be able to get away with everything he's doing because it's all based on greed and yada 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 like Vizzini. yeah and it's really interesting, right? That we have one, two, three, four, five villains in this movie, right? If you can call, if you can call, like you know, Inigo and Fezzik villains, right? Yeah. Because we have like five villains in this movie, and we have our protagonist, you know, Wesley, and each one of them, you know, something about even if even though there's so many people in this movie right i because this movie's like 90 minutes long this one's actually what is it 98 minutes long and we have five villains we have a romance story we have there's a comedy going on here there's political intrigue going on here there's adventure there's action and the movie has economically paced it out so we know everything about each one of these characters, how they relate to each other, and we're completely bought into it. I don't know what I was going with that. I just wanted to point out that, that like, I just realized when you were saying that, that we have, like, five villains in this movie, and I know everything about them. Yeah, and uh, everything about them you understand, because that's the point. We're not supposed to... Mystery isn't something that you should base the entire thing on, right? 
Mm-hmm. And I think that's a little bit too where Willow um, dropped the ball. Dropped, yeah, dropped the ball. Is that the mystery kind of gets in the way of finding answers? Don't get me wrong, but like, I really was like not realizing what the whole point of what was going on was half the way through Willow. Willow. I, I mean, I kind of had to stop and realize, like, okay, there's a baby. What's the baby doing? Uh, it's supposed to save everybody but it's a baby so i don't it, really it's like a thing for a prophecy that's like glossed over it's a MacGuffin. But yeah. yeah it's it's weird because like in every other story the baby would have just been like in the beginning and then eventually the baby would have grown up a little bit and then that's when the prophecy really begins mm-hmm. is once the kid has grown a little older ergo something maybe like a harry potter you know where there's the prodigal baby and then after they're actually able to physically move on their own and not drink milk for sustenance, you know, they can, they, they're a formidable opponent to whatever the evil is in the story. Uh, but it's like with this, you're supposed to understand the characters because that's what story is. It's character. And how are you supposed to under understand what your main character is fighting against if it's shrouded in mystery for most of the movie, then it's, then it almost feels like the goal doesn't really make sense. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know what? Like, I think like, okay. I think we just have to talk about the characters, like one, like one and one on one and just give like a little tidbit. Cause I think each one of these characters is worth talking about. Yeah. And I think that'll also kind of point out why, this movie is so much different than Willow is. Yeah. Because in Willow, we have, there's like five characters that are on this road movie. And like, we only talked about two of them in Willow. Right. Yeah. I mean, really it's, I think I mentioned three actual character names and one of them, the character like disappears halfway through the movie. I actually don't even know where the character ends up. I don't know where Migosh goes. That's correct. That, Actually, yeah, you did. We only mentioned like three characters by name, but yeah. in this one, we got Wesley, played by um, Carrie Elwes, yep. and is he just the embodiment of every Arrow Flint role put into one? You know what I really noticed about him in this movie? Mm-hmm. He has a knack for just being porcelain still, like. There, in some of the shots, it's like you the the you I, I focused on the way that his head and his eyes were just stone cold still, and it was so like, dude, it was it it just like made me sit there and it exuded confidence. You know what I mean? Okay, that hundred percent can get behind it because when this guy looks like down the lens of the camera or whatever, like it, he's looking into your soul. Yeah, or it's like, it's specifically, I noticed it in the scene where he's, uh, the king has come into the room when he's like paralyzed in the bed. Mm-hmm. And they're kind of having this exchange where the king is questioning if he has the strength to get up. And then um, Wesley comes back saying, you know, is it that I don't have the strength to get up? Or is that I have the strength to get up and I haven't shown you until now or something like this? Yeah. When he's saying those lines back to the king, yeah, he's paralyzed, but like I noticed that he was just had this like his look and I could tell, you know, he's looking off camera right into the soul of the king. 
and it did he didn't blink he didn't but it wasn't creepy it was like this guy means business it's it was, one of it's one of those things where it's like if you had that stare woman would fall before you you can totally see why buttercup is completely in love with this guy just by that look and can we talk about buttercup for a second after you all right. i mean uh but so this is i think another robin reason right yeah this is a, the, the famous robin Wright. um this is another reason i think that the movie is a little bit borderlining on the you know parody is like buttercup as the name of the princess yeah is it, the it's, princess it is, bride it it's stereotypical it's just like what would the princess be named princess buttercup yeah it sound it sounds like something you would make up and then it's prince humperdink yeah it's real close to a dick joke somewhere but you know it's almost like it's textbook screenwriting in a way where it's like your the names of your characters should perfectly embody who they are yeah. wesley is very charismatic you know um handsome guy uh, buttercup is the 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 naive princess who will become king of the, or queen of the castle someday anigo montoya is exactly the type of name for a character who needs a revenge plot yes 110 <laughs> percent. the no, greatest revenge plot to ever be written by the way i will say this right now anigo montoya is the most influential fictional character in the realm of Dungeons and Dragons to have ever been created. Oh, I'm sure. He's probably one of the influential, most influential characters to ever been created, period. Well, I, now, I say this because Dungeons and Dragons came out in the, in the 70s and people were like, dude, what are you talking about? Go and ask any table that has ever ran Dungeons and Dragons and somebody, I guarantee you, I will bet my house on this, will say, yeah, my backstory was just Anigo Montoya. Somebody killed my father, and I'm on a search for to avenge his his legacy. Yeah, because it's again super stereotypical what you think it is. It's just that then it's done so well and specifically with the six fingered man that you get caught up in it because it's like, well, I've never heard that before. <laughs> right? Well, it's one of those things where it's like, oh, it's this guy, and and the other thing is like many uh. Patekin? Is that how you pronounce his uh, last Mandy name? Mandy Patinkin. Patinkin. He also sells that role like a champ. Yeah, he's perfect is, for it. Is there anyone else you can think of as Enigo Montoya? Well, no, because up until this point, I had a zero clue it was Mandy Patinkin. It's like that he dis it's again, it's the character disappears into the role exactly like Val Kilmer doesn't. <laughs> Dude, could you imagine if uh, Mandy Patinkin was Mad Mardigan and Willow? He would have blown Willow out of the fucking water. Like, you gotta be kidding me. You're like, dude, that charm just exuding off him. I wouldn't know what to do with myself. Jesus Christ. Yeah, they ought to do, like, a Princess Bride sequel where Willow is just the story of Inigo Montoya as Dread Pirate Roberts. Honestly, I would give... Oh, that'd be so good. I just... Because I kind of want to know what happened to Inigo after the whole thing, you know, being Dread Pirate. Uh, it, good stuff, good stuff. Yeah, and then we also have Fezzik, the definition of a gentle giant, being played by a real life gentle giant, also being played by one of, if not the most famous people to have ever lived, one uh, probably the most famous pro wrestler ever. It's like yeah. him, it's because it's like Andre the Giant, Hulk Hogan, Stone Cold Steve Austin, John Cena. But if you were to ask anybody who 
like what's the wrestler you know it's either going to be hulk hogan and then immediately afterward his nemesis andre the giant my uncle my uncle danny and my aunt kathy were at wrestlemania 3 and they saw the slamming of the giant my uncle danny has still been hyped for that it's been 40 it's been like 30 years he is still hyped over that the greatest body slam ever yes it's the slamming of the giant. I can just go up to people and be like, do you know about the slamming of the giant? And then they'll just look at me dead in the eye and be like, when Hulk Hogan slammed onto the giant? Hell yeah, dude. I wasn't even born yet, but I popped off. It was great. That video is actually legitimately impressive. Like, you and I are both fans of pro wrestling, but yeah. it's it's fascinating because it's like, nothing like that has ever been done since. And I mean that to say, yeah, there's been big men in wrestling, but nobody as big as Andre the Giant and nobody as prolific as Hulk Hogan, Hogan. and nothing as, I'm going to flat out say it, there's been people who've jumped off Hell in the Cell, there's been people who've crashed through things, people have broken their neck, people have died in the ring, nothing has been as physically impressive as somebody flipping Andre the Giant. Which is insane, because it's just a basic body slam. But you know what? It's, this it's kind of all the here's hype. how I'm tying it back into Princess Bride is that it's all about the story, right? Yeah, and it's all about the way you just set it up. Nobody had ever done that to Andre the Giant before that, and then that Hulk Hogan was finally able to perfectly act out, just body slamming this over seven foot tall person, Th- this mountain of a man. Yeah, if Cause... if I can get the by the way, because I think this is this is important to understanding Andre the Giant. If I can get the exact measurements on the uh, size of this man, it's he is seven foot four inches, 224 centimeters for those internationally, 520 pounds. 520 pounds in shape. That's a lot of guy. That's a lot of man. That's a lot of man. That's bordering on three people in one person. Yeah. Well, dude, that's like um, that's almost like two Americans slapped together, all right. Yeah. But let's, but that's, but that's the thing, you know, because Andre the Giant is one of those like we're gonna talk about Andre the Giant for a minute because I love Andre the Giant, but oh, Andre the Giant's one of those people who are just like he's like a cultural thing, you know, where it's like there's a there was a point in time where it's just like oh it's it's Andre the Giant. Everybody knew who Andre the Giant was. You know, he was the man. And, you know, we have him in this movie and we're watching him and it's just, and it's weird because it's like almost Andre the Giant just playing Andre the Giant. This giant human being, he's stronger, he's bigger than everybody else. And he's, you know, playing this kind of fun guy. He's, you know, laughing. He's, you know, he's might not be the sharpest tool in the shed, but he's, you know, everybody likes him and he's super charming and that's the crazy thing is Andre the giant that his english is not great well, but no, god damn he's french as well i mean yeah it's not his first language yeah which i i would love to hear andre the giant speaking french could could you imagine because you know andre the giant when he's speaking in english this is kind of how he talks it's really loud and booming but if I want to imagine he speaks perfect French, he's like Pepe Le Pew. It's like suave as shit. 
Like there's no like like giant voice. It's like I super look charming. I want to live see if I can find a clip of him. I can French. guarantee it exists. I can guarantee it exists. It has to, but I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna see if I can find something. But yeah, but something Continue cool. speaking about Andre the Giant in the interim. I will, but and that's the thing, you know, in the film he exudes this, you know, he's like stronger, bigger than everybody else, and he's fun, he's caring, and all this other stuff. But um, behind the scenes fact about Andre the Giant is that his back was shot during the entirety of filming, and it kind of came about later in life because, as we said, when you're seven foot four and you walk around at 500 plus pounds basically your entire adult life your your joints kind of go so at the end of the movie when he has to hold up robin wright in his in his arms um she's on wires because his back couldn't support the weight of another human being lifting him up like that and isn't that so sad i mean like to really think about that he finally got to be and thankfully he got to be in a movie where it's like it'll go down in history and that nobody will ever forget him because of it it's one of those things where it's like even if you're not a wrestling fan you can love andre the giant for this movie yeah because i think it's also one of the things that a lot of stars lack nowadays is they lack lovability don't get me wrong everybody loves the rock but nobody really like nobody can really like cuddle up to the rock you know what i mean right it is is it's a he's got he's got the all the charisma and the smile but then it's like i don't know maybe Shaq had this too he had sort of a lovable quality about him that even through things like you know <laughs> uh kazam uh, hey we're gonna watch that on this on this podcast all right because that was one of those movies my dad used to rent from blockbusters to make Kazam me and my or brother shazam? shut up am i crazy shazam okay. i think it was shazam. Okay. shazam i think kazam was the one with um uh sinbad that's fake but everybody made it real by wishing it into existence right uh i don't know i i just feel like there's a different quality about Andre the Giant that is missing from a lot of people that we see on screen today. I don't know. It, it is it is odd. Like th- we've watched a lot of movies that are from the past, quote unquote. Uh, yeah. On the podcast, we really haven't done any contemporary movies because you know COVID's going on. But then also it's like we wanted to do some favorites of ours in this first half th- year of. Doing I think this. the most recent movie we did was. Yes, God, yes, and the Five Bloods. I think those were the two most recents we done. Yeah, and then next year I'm sure we'll get into some more contemporary things. But it's been fascinating to to see certain qualities of these films that are not really present in contemporary films. And I yeah. don't know. I don't know why. I can't put my finger on why certain films nowadays just don't feel the same anymore as other movies did for and by the way movies felt the way that these movies felt for like several decades you know from the you're gonna get the same feeling you get out of a movie like i don't know something from 1969 like uh um you're searching for it well, if we're just talking about a movie that's just like makes you feel like like good, like it's a sincere good feeling. It's like Mr. Smith goes to Washington, oldest film we've done on the podcast, and at the end you like Jamie Stewart and his performance, all this other stuff. It and it's that sincerity, and you feel good about 
and you feel good at the end of the movie. This, it's the same thing, you know, 40 years later, you know, it's sincere, it's fun, and it makes you feel good at the end. And, you know, and we've done, we've done movies like that. It's almost like a thing where somewhere in, like, the 90s and, like, kind of that early 2000s area, we hit that point of, like, sincerity didn't work anymore and irony and parody became the norm. Like, you couldn't just make a, a straight action movie. You had to make, like, a parody action movie or an action movie that was conscious that it was a cheesy action movie and, like, subverted the genre kind of thing. Yeah. I don't know why I can't Did Scream really ruin everything? I don't know. Maybe it did. It ruined I, I slasher it was, movies for, like, I think a it still existed through the 90s, this, this feeling I'm talking about. That doesn't have a name. And if anybody would like to point me out to a vocabulary word for whatever I'm feeling right now, I need help. Call 1-800, you know, talk David. to a therapist or whatever the hell. Uh, but, like, I don't know. It's like, I, I can't think of a, a movie that would do the same thing. Because nowadays, like, fantasy movies have to get dark. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, the last fantasy movie that I think can think of that was commercially popular was like the the Harry Potter spinoff, um, Fantastic Beasts. Fantastic Beasts. But let's That's be honest, that movie only made money because it was Harry. It was a Harry Potter thing, right? Yeah, and don't get me wrong, I liked that movie because it had certain qualities to it, like the lovability factor. The characters in that movie are very lovable, and I liked them, and I liked the story in that movie. It's that then certain things like. Johnny Depp was in it at the in at the height of the whole Amber Heard, you know, conspiracy slash problem, whatever people want to chalk that up to now. Did you hear about what happened with that? Because I guess um, he so lost they fi- his defamation case. No, well, they fired him off the thing, and then every and then it came out that it's like, oh no, she was like lying about it the whole time, and then everybody's like super mad at Warner Brothers, and they wanted to hire Johnny Depp back. Yeah, I don't. I don't, he, I don't really know I, the details about that because I, I just saw like it on the, a Reddit post. So. Yeah, the most recent things I've seen is that he lost his defamation case, and that there is there was apparently increasing public facing uh, per, uh, perception that Amber Heard was lying about it the entire time. I don't know exactly because I don't know the details of the whole thing, and I'm not really going to comment on either way. Yeah. I just know then the other thing I saw is that he ended up leaving Fantastic Beasts. It wasn't that he was fired. Uh, that was at least what I've seen recently. I um, I I don't know because like half the time I see stuff on like IMDb and it says one thing, Reddit says another thing. My brother sees something on 4chan, it's another thing. I don't yeah, know. The internet's I mean, weird and news is all relative. Yeah, and all of this is a moot point to what really I'm trying to get at here, and is that Princess Bride, for some reason, has this this quality about it where the set design isn't over the top, right? It's act- almost storybook yeah, in a lot of ways. The acting and writing are textbook, but just genius enough to, to hook you in. The directing is not over the top, and it is in ma- many ways probably very noticeable, but in the right way. I almost, I almost think the directing is almost like incredibly subtle. Like you almost like you almost forget that the the editing and the camera moves in ways and you're just so like engulfed in the character. Like the directing is incredibly subtle. Same with the cutting yeah. and you know the Maybe editing. Maybe so. Like 
I don't know. There's just an uh, there. Uh, I'm going to chalk it up to there's an unknowable quality about this film that for some reason we've lost, and I really want directors and writers and actors to find it again because movies nowadays just for some reason have a much different uh, a bit no pun intended but film over them where they're a little bit too realistic at at times they are a little bit too i don't know i i I can't put my finger on it and maybe i should just you know what it is technology got too good cgi made it so directors then have to have to work maybe because that was actually something i was thinking about i was watching a um this is kind of a tangent but i was watching this video essay on kurosawa's cinematography earlier mm-hmm. and yeah that's the most film student thing i've ever said and it's pretty hardcore yeah i was noticing in a lot of the shots that like the the practical effects were really emphasized and i that almost makes it more pronounced in the building of his images because he's a very image-based director where he wants all of his cinematography to be composed uh, rather than kind of more naturalistic and flowing, which is kind of like the, I think that's another thing I can point out is that cinematography nowadays, barring maybe like a a Wes Anderson or somebody like him who has a little bit more style or an Edgar Wright, maybe the cinematography is they have a shtick. Yeah, it's a little bit too naturalistic to where the image isn't as noticeable, you know? Because I often think about this. This is actually a good example of what I mean because it perfectly tracks a director who existed during this time and then also exists in contemporary film. Uh, Martin Scorsese, right? He's a guy who always emphasizes the importance of the image, especially Kurosawa. I mean, that's somebody who he gets a lot of influence from. And... You know, in his previous films, yeah, you could definitely notice the image plays an important role in in supplementing the story. Uh, most famously, we could think about movies maybe like on on the nose, Goodfellas, and the whole trunk bit. Um, but then there's movies like Wolf of Wall Street, in which he tries to point out in this uh, video I watched, I think it was from the behind the scenes that the ending shot of the film, you know, pans out from the whole uh, Jake, I think is the main character of the film, Mm -hmm. right? Pans out from getting this guy to try and sell him the pen at the seminar and the camera pans over the audience, them staring back at him. And he, and he points out that there's this whole, um, there's a religion to what's going on there and yada, yada, yada. And it just kind of gets lost on me because I'm sitting there going, yeah, but really what you're doing is ha- craning the camera over the audience, which I feel like is kind of a contemporary way to shoot that because the camera can go more places now. Whereas in a previous, maybe a little bit more non-contemporary film, the camera might ha- have have to been static or out more so the the shot would be a little bit more large and noticeable it, it's one of those things where it's like because it's almost one of those things where we have more value like i think it's the thing where it's uh pretentious you know film people such as myself <laughs> yeah. is that we we put more weight in older films and their camera work than is 
than we do in newer films and their camera, or we put in newer films in general. Because we, um, for those who don't know, uh, film school brats here, in like film school and film education, you watch old movies. You don't really watch contemporary films unless it's like very specific for that class or even for that like topic of conversation. Usually you're watching films from like the 60s. Yeah, that's true. 70s is like the oldest most things go. And there's a huge emphasis on like, well, what does the camera mean? What does this do? Why is this important? Why is that important? And a lot of times it's so like, it, a lot of times in older films, it works because it was so like revolutionary at the time. But when you watch it with modern eyes, it doesn't work. Yeah. Because we've seen it perfected over the 40 years since this happened. And I think that's kind of the thing with The Princess Bride to round it back because I'm good at this game. Yeah. It's Princess Bride is almost that perfect point where it's like it's the development of like film where it's like we kind of we've seen some of the greatest adventure films the fantasy films the family films up to this point because this movie came out in 87 so we had already had you know adventures of robin hood we've already had um uh god uh any name some fantasy movies for me because i'm drawing a blank because i'm bad wizard of oz we've seen the wizard of oz and all these other things yeah and but we haven't gotten to the point where it's like technology has started overreaching because we haven't gotten to you know jurassic park where it's like oh cgi can do no wrong we haven't gotten to like you know that stuff where it's like oh computers are really starting to get in and we can kind of start fiddling with the image a little bit more or cameras aren't you know that cameras can you know do different things and all these other things we we haven't gotten to like dslr we haven't gotten to digital age yet like that doesn't that doesn't come into effect for another like couple years after this movie like a year after this when willow came out that's when ilm was like oh we can do all these things with computers and insert all these stop motion stuff into scenes and we can make people look big small whatever and i think that's the thing with princess bride it's the it's almost that perfect point between old school sensibility and sincerity versus like new school like like technology and kind of like um I'm, I'm trying to find another thing because it's like that's that's how i feel about this movie like everything after there's after this movie and before this movie and it might not be this movie in general but this like era of film yeah right yeah am i, I crazy I, or am i just am i rambling or i'm or i'm on to something here no i agree and I, I don't know why we can't come to like some sort of definition for what we're trying to talk about here and i'm sure there's a view like a listener out there presently or otherwise who's screaming into their mic or, you know, earbuds calling us assholes and idiots for not. There's probably, there's probably somebody out there who's like, guys, you've been on this for like 20 minutes. I get the point. Yeah. Sorry to that person. It's just, there's something uncanny about the whimsy that this film has, despite the fact that all it really is, is a castle, some swamp sets, uh, I mean, literally, the 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 sword fight between Inigo Montoya and uh, Wesley takes place on a set. It's very noticeable. Um, it almost like this could have been a stage play. Yeah, and the, right, Goldman, I think, does have some experience in that. Um, but it's so simple in its in its 
production that it's almost a little bit more I don't know we've had this conversation too where it's like practical effects are always more believable I'm uh, flat out it's like because you know it's there and um your your know. brain's not telling you it's bullshit every couple of seconds it's just like no that that's a real guy that that's real yeah it just looks weird I don't know but, I, I just yeah maybe we should maybe we should move on from this let's um yeah let's talk about some we even go from here well we were talking about the characters and we got on Andre the giant for like an hour yeah so <laughs> but, but we also have Chris Serrano as Prince Humperdinck the greatest villain in cinema uh, who yeah. I've actually met before I actually oh. um yeah, so uh, he was the voice of Jack Skellington in Nightmare Before Christmas, for those who really? didn't know. Yes, yes, he was. And my girlfriend is a huge fan of Nightmare Before Christmas, so me and her went to a signing he was at, because he was going to sign all the Nightmare Before Christmas merch. And I was there, and I was like, and my, I was there, and I realized, oh, wait, he was Prince Humperdinck. And I was like, haha, I'm going to do something here. And I went and bought a copy of The Princess Bride. Or I might have stolen my sister's copy, and I had him sign it to my sister because it's her favorite movie, and that was her Christmas gift that year. Yeah. One Christmas like a champ, everyone. That's how you do it. Very good. Very good. But yeah. Um, so he did but I met him and he was like super cool. But in this yeah. movie he's a bastard. But in real life, super yeah, cool. Yeah, it's almost as if people aren't who they are on film. <laughs> who knew? I who would never, never would have crossed my mind. Yeah. But yeah, um, so Prince Humperdinck, what makes him a bad guy? Is it the um, vanity? Is it the killing of his wife? Yeah, it's kind of the thing we talked about before, where the the, the character is based in something very basic, so such as vanity, because that's what character is. Me having read my all my screenplay books, that's all character is. Is it's a very basic moral standing that you then visualize through their wardrobe, their action, etc. And this king, who's very put together, his hair is very handsome, everything about him is is regal, um, but his action is like dissonant from who he really is trying to be. He has all these like underhanded political plots ready to go. He's gonna be he's gonna technically commit. Um, what would you call that? You're trying to think of a fancy word for knocking off your your bride, right? Yeah, yeah. there's a word for it, I know, but it, it, yeah, it's he's gonna create a conspiracy for killing his wife in order to trigger this whole political war, which is super dark when you really think about it. But yeah, yeah, um, or or the fact that his second in command, uh, Count Rugen, played by Christopher Guest, is like an actual sadist. Like he gets off on like torturing people. He has a yeah. torture palace. And there's like this weird kind of, maybe this is just me and noticing it this time around, I could totally be wrong, but there's some weird homoerotic thing going on between them uh, where it almost seems like they're, kind of, they're a little bit into each other. They're a little bit like, uh, there's, there's a line in the movie where he says, you know, I enjoy watching you work. And it's just like, that was, that for me was like, hmm. <laughs> You're just like, mm, 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 subtle, mm, subtleties going on here. I think there's a reason you don't want to actually marry Princess Buttercup. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but yeah, I, I think that then ex extending just the basic, you know, idea of vanity into all of his action and his character. Mm -hmm. 
Like he even has to, to look good getting on a horse. Like when yeah. he hops on his horse, he he hops onto it like you know, like he's on a like he, uh, he. I know he is on a movie set, but it's even like more like. Well, it, it's that top, idea of vanity isn't just like you want to look good, but it's that you calculate why you look good at every moment for the purpose of using it uh, to your advantage, you know? And then that's like everything about what he does in the film. Every, everything that he does is a calculation so that he can ultimately get what he wants, which, you know, is kind of the opposite. Vanity really is the opposite of what any main character needs to be. Unless this is of course something like a tragedy or an anti-hero story or some weird, you know, postmodern bullshit that we get a lot of nowadays. Um, Though I guess I shouldn't say that because Joker's an anti-hero film and that character is probably the least vain character to ever live. Go figure. Um, But yeah, again, it's just the perfect combination of also he never, the other thing that I really like about all these characters is all of their all of their specific choices that they end up having are still pretty simple. It's just that a six-fingered man killed my father. It's just that I want to do everything as she as she wishes. It's just that I fell in love with a man because he went off and was killed by the Dread Pirate Roberts and he fell head over heels for me. It's just that, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it's just that he wants to start this political war and he's going to take a beautiful wife to kill as a conspiracy. There's no extra layer of complicated bullshit that which is kind of interesting right because you just went over every character's motivation in this movie and it really is that surface level yeah because like think about too if we want to compare them again willow the only willow is the only character in that movie that i think has that simple of a motivation he wants to become the greatest wizard of his generation and rise from being a you know common street magician that's it that's all his character is but val kilmer it's like well i don't even know if you can even define what he wants it's that he's in prison and then he wants freedom he wants freedom he wants in the form of taking this baby and then the baby he ends up liking but then he also ends up liking the 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 villain's daughter then that also makes him want to fight for the baby which then it's like it goes around in this circle that has too many stops on the way yeah and i think that's that's interesting because each character has their own little motivation and like wesley's motivation is the is what is the whole is the whole movie that's what the whole movie's about right yeah. He wants to get Buttercup and take her away and they want to live happily ever after. And, you know, he kind of meets all these strange cast and characters, uh, gets what he thinks he gets what he wants, and then it's like, oh, he gets trapped by Prince Hopperdink and he goes to the torture room and, you know, we have that whole thing. And then Inigo Montoya and Fezzix, they manage to save him and it's the whole Miracle Max thing. And it, it's, it's really interesting because the story is super simple. Yeah. It's super basic. And it just works. God damn it, Bethesda, it just works. Yeah. 
I don't know. I've, I kind of feel like that's even getting back into the circle of why we initially started talking about this movie. And maybe that's a, a signal and a sign that we need to move into the comparison of these movies in earnest. Before we do, there's one thing I want to talk about. Okay. You killed my father. Prepare to die. Is that is is Inigo Montoya fighting Count Rugen at the end? Is that is that one of the best character payoffs ever? Is that one of the best sword fights ever? Is that one of the best like fuck yeah moments in cinema history? It's certainly not one of my favorite lines from this week. Um, I actually I wrote down one. Um, wait wait wait. There's a line in this movie better than hello. My name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. No, the, I think that. there's a line in Willow that uh, certainly caught my eye more because Ooh. I'm pretty sure I heard a character say that they were going to start the second Reich in Willow. I could be wrong. I could be totally wrong. But <laughs> if people, I thought I, know I heard people that can't line. see me, but my eyes just got real wide. Yeah, <laughs> I'm about to I, look at Willow whole whole lot different. Listen, I, I it could also be because I wasn't paying attention to this fucking boring ass second act of that movie, but. That's that's really mean. I shouldn't say it that harshly, but I swear I heard the queen of uh, Baraka or whatever the hell her name is. Baraka pool, or, or what's her name? I, it's like it really sucks because I was the one who lobbied for Willow, and I'm the one who can't remember <laughs> <Yeah>. dick about it. <laughs> yeah, but she says something to the effect of "We must start the second, and then I'm pretty sure the word I heard next was Reich. I could be totally wrong, but it sounded a lot like it. That would that would color this movie uh, a lot differently in my memory. Yeah, um, but yeah, no, Inigo uh, Montoya. It's it. It's kind of funny because like there are several pieces of dialogue in this movie that you can use dialogue as symbol. Um, and it's af- actually recommended as one of like a really it's a really good screenwriting tool to use um, and that's one that is super on the nose but the emotional impact of that line it, it like makes the dialogue transcend being dialogue the best part about that whole fight scene when he's like offer me anything Offer me the world. Riches beyond my wildest imagination. He's like, yours and and everything you want, even more. He's like, offer me anything my heart desires. And he says, anything you yeah, want. Actually, yeah. I want my father back, you son of a bitch. And stabbed. That's the oh. best line in the movie. So good. <laughs> oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it, it's like, it's almost weird because you want to follow Inigo Montoya. Right? He is the Han Solo of this movie. You just want to follow him. But or then just like Wesley is also been, like a really interesting character. The movie has been fairly G-rated to this point, so it's certainly it's like when that line is said, there's just some stank on it. Again, Mandy Patinkin, your country needs you. Just so good. Yeah, he needs... So good. He really does need you. He's been TikTok famous as of late, and I've been really enjoying it. Um <laughs> But he needs to be in more TV and film because we, we just we just need more Inigo Montoya. Yeah, that's all we want. That's well, because we his his era of Criminal Minds was also my favorite. My girlfriend loves that show, and and um, the, his seasons were the most enjoyable because he is such a good actor, and the emotion in that of that character is is it's breathtaking. 
I have never got like uh, I can't say I've never been into Criminal Minds because it's that's one of those shows that's on twenty four seven. Yeah. So you just you just end up watching it if you're flipping through the channels. But like, I don't know. I now knowing that he was in Criminal Minds for a lot more of it than I thought he was, I might go back and watch it. There's but an episode know. that I recommend if you want to to get into the show because it's a procedural. You don't have to like start at a specific episode. Oh yeah. There's an I'm, overarching yeah. story to the show, but like, it's still fairly procedural in the way it operates. And there's a, there's an episode earlier in the run of the show where he, because he kind of is the main character for a lot of those earlier seasons, he like, there's a there's a killer where they have to go like prove that she didn't kill her son or something like this before she's put to death. Um, and it turns out that she's like taking the fall for her son so that he can live a better life. It's one of the most heartbreaking pieces of television I've ever watched. And he is at the centerpiece of why that is one of the greatest pieces of television I've ever watched. So I recommend, I don't, I can't remember what the name of this episode is or what season it's from or whatever, but go find it. Anybody who's listening, watch that if you're not into criminal minds if you are you know what i'm talking about and you know what i mean when i say it is the best yeah but yeah and honestly we we can't just gush about mandy patinkin because also carrie ellis who is super funny in this movie and we also find out that him with mel brooks makes the funniest robin hood in cinema history yeah and then he's also in saw and it's oh, like, you know, oh man range. range range right but yeah, like honestly, I don't think there's a bad performance in the whole movie. No, nobody at all. Everybody takes their character to exactly the place where it should go. Yeah, and and before we do the comparison to to tug at your heartstrings, the thing that Andre the Giant loved about making this movie more than anything else was that no one stared at him on set. He felt like a normal person on set because no one stared at and gawked at him. Tugging at your heartstrings, there you go. Well, if you didn't already have a reason to cry, there you go. The Gentle Giant. Now we're going in to compare these two movies. Now tell me, what? Why is Willow just superior? Why is Willow just the best movie ever made? Why is Princess Bride trash? Why is well, what's going on here? If we're comparing these two. Well, and that's the double feature for the week. Uh, there you go, ladies yeah. and gentlemen. <laughs> no, it's. It's not, it's absolutely the Princess Bride up and down. And throughout the episode, that's in kind of the theme of our conversation. I feel like there's not much more we could say about why yeah. Princess Bride is better than Willow. I mean, really, I think it's just over the, I think overarching the thing I would like to fully point out in all of this is mm-hmm. we we talked about it a bit when we watched Time Bandits, but the Princess Bride is also one of those movies that like, I feel like a younger generation of children needs to watch in order to keep the tradition going and like, Show them what fantasy can really be, not it, Trolls World Tour. <laughs> you got a lot of hate for the trolls, but Do you, you don't look at I've that never thing, se- dude. I've never seen them, but yeah, I know the the from the people terrible. who brought you emoji movie. Jesus. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but like that—that's the thing. It goes back to the Gilliam episode where it's like they just don't make movies like this anymore. And Willow, beyond all of its faults, I still think it's an enjoyable movie, but you can tell it airs really young. Like, sub 
10 maybe yeah but maybe it, a little bit younger but there's it's like it has that really weird balance that a lot of kind of from like this year until like maybe up until 2000 maybe a little afterward children's entertainment found this really good balance of being smart enough for the parents but also being like childish enough for the kids yeah and i think that's the balance it strikes is like it's it could be for a children's audience because that's technically who it's being told to but it's also just smart enough so that audiences of any age can really get into this movie and that's the and that's also the princess bride because i think the princess bride is the textbook of that of that kind of movie where it's it's just fun enough for the kids. It's just, you know, goofy enough for the kids to go on with it. I'm but it's not just heartfelt right enough and just smart enough for the adults. Yes. I'm not going to lie right now. I was think I was so caught up in our conversation about Princess Bride. I thought that was the film we were talking about. Willow is definitely not smart enough for adults. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I honestly, I was like... You know, I'm just gonna roll with this because I I'm pretty sure you think we're still talking about Princess Bride. No, I was talking about no, Willow, no. but yeah. But like, I was tra- Willow for a second, is... I was actually trying to confirm that Trolls World Tour was made by the same people as Emoji Movie, but that's not ah, an okay. important piece of trivia for this conversation. So, but yeah, but like, Go if figure. I'm being honest, like Willow Willow's for kids. Willow is for like sub ten year old kids, right? Absolutely, yeah. It's definitely right. for a children's audience. And that they tried to get the fan. It, it's a Disney movie, so they tried to get the family into it. But, you know, not really working. Yeah, like, it does, like, if you had, like, little, little kids, you can put on Willow and they're going to be entertained. Yeah. But. Willow could be an animated movie. That's, a, that's how it would think, put it. I think that's probably, it would be better if it was an animated movie. It would make more sense. Yeah. <laughs> right? I think that that's the thing. Like, if you're going to, like, Willow's one of those movies where it's like, you're going to watch it as a little kid, and you're probably, you'll remember it a little bit, but once you hit, like, 13, like, the moment you hit 13, you will never watch Willow again unless you need to put something on for another tiny human being. Yeah. Whereas The Princess Bride, you could feasibly, it, like, honestly, I think that movie just, like, it's a fine wine. Princess Bride gets better with age. I agree. Because it's one of those things where it's like, as a kid, you're just like, oh, you know, cool adventure story. Then as you get a little bit older, oh, it's a cool, like, oh, it's a love story. You get a little older, oh, it's, you know, the story of this grandfather trying to connect with his son through, like, stories. And it, like, it ages up. Yeah. And it's really smart. Good. And then maybe this is another reason, too, why I'm fascinated by Goldman, is it just is such a perfectly crafted piece of writing in that way of serving the audience that it really makes me want to understand the process of whittling away each layer of that story. Like you start obviously probably with the kid's story, but then you add the pieces for the older audience and then you add the pieces for, or it's probably there from the get-go because it's in the middle of the story, but you add the pieces for the quite old audience that you're going for. Like, I I just would love to know, I, I want to witness one of these screenwriters going through the drafts of these stories in which they find each piece that makes this movie what it is. So, before the pandemic, there was a class. I think it was taught at like USC or something like that. Hmm. It was one of those big film schools. 
And the whole semester was just talking about and breaking down how Citizen Kane was written and, like, made. Basically, it went from initial concept, went through the entire production, the writing process, filming, location, distribution, the entirety of Citizen Kane. Hmm. Because it's been considered the greatest film of all time for so long. Yeah, you know. You know. Would you pay for a class like that, except it's The Princess Bride? Absolutely. Right? Like, I think that would just work out a lot better. I think you get more more, more bites on that one. Yeah, I think this is getting quite specific for the conversation, but I really feel like that that could exist in that, like, special screenwriting program at UCLA. Um, and then it would be, like, the, a really good tool for a lot of writers to get into, to take with them into the contemporary market. It'd be a thing where it's like, if you were a screenwriting teacher, you would talk about Chinatown the conventional perfect script and you like like what are like the three great what are like the three scripts if you were if you were a screenwriting teacher princess bride is probably on that list i put chinatown on that list of best screenplays well it's the third one you'd be like if you're studying scripts this is what you're studying is it like some like it hot just because billy wilder because he's great let me think about this for a moment because this is a good question I know, I know we're getting on some weird tangents here, but I think it just exemplifies that the, the script is solid. One script I think is is fairly textbook. Maybe maybe not perfect because it's not a very well-known film, but I think, and certainly because it's pointed out in screenplay, so I think it has some merit to being a recognized script. Uh, Collateral? Uh, yes. Because I, I th- remember that, That's like that the movie. perfect action movie script. It's just so like, by the book yeah kind of thing another another film though that i think is worth studying um as far as like unconventional narrative goes is and of course as soon as i mention it i forget the name um you know how this works just tell me what it's about and i'll probably know the movie (laughs) it's it's you know the the japanese movie where it's the trial and uh rashomon rashomon i was i was about to say i was about to say russian in and i'm like that's super racist if you try and even say the japanese word that you know it is (laughs) uh i'm I'm over here being like bruh japanese trial rashomon got it nailed it that's a story that i think people would need to study in this type of class um but yeah and And... after actually after that one more and then it would be it uh, double indemnity. Oh, double indemnity, so good. Yeah, is that? I think that's ability Wilder script too. I think. I, I think might be wrong. I'm not. I'm not 100. I might be wrong. I don't know. I don't know yeah. any wiser than you are. So. Yeah, uh, but that's the that's the thing. Princess Bride deserves to be like studied in a classroom for its story, how it constructs it, how it sets up and pays off its characters. Willow should be watched by like five year olds. Yeah. Is that is that the comparison we're ending up here? I think so. And you know what? Willow, I will. I, here's how I will recommend the films finally. Willow is a good warm-up film to The Princess Bride. That's how I watched these, is I watched Willow first, and then Princess Bride was the, the fantastic main course. Um, but Willow is a, it's a nice bite to eat if you really just want something to, to whisk you off your feet for a few hours. I think that's a good way to put it. Yeah. Willow's a good like warm-up to the rest of the fantasy stuff you're going to get into. 
Yeah, because it's by the book. It's simple. It's not complicated. There's the the all the beats that you wanted to hit. There's a lot of set pieces going on. There's a lot of yeah. like interesting it's production just going interesting on. Interesting enough, you know, it's all there. It's on Disney Plus. You have it. Yeah, they're both on Disney Plus. That's how I watched them. Wink, wink. Wink, wink. We are not sponsored yet. No, I yet. was going to say, I, oh, you actually have Disney Plus. Yeah, my, uh, no, that, yes, I did not Dean steal this watching movie. watching a movie legally? What? It's not, uh, no, 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 I ain't paying for Disney Plus. Are you high? My girlfriend is. I have her login. Oh, okay, okay, okay. But yeah, like, for those who don't <laughs> know, I am a degenerate, all right? If, yeah. I, if I'd have to look for my DVD copy of some of these films for more than 30 seconds, I'm going to some Russian websites. Yeah. We're looking for we're looking for some for some cheap gains here. That's fair. That's fair. But if you would like Dean to buy more movies, visit our sponsor. Yeah, and so, uh, I guess I guess that's. Um... I mean, I think we could gush about Princess Bride for another half hour, but I don't know if. It'd be all the if same. If there's more there. It'd be all the same. We would just keep going over. It's like, oh man, the characters are so good. The story it's, is good. Yeah, it'd be doing no more justice than just telling you, go watch The Princess Bride. It's the perfect movie to watch right now to take you out of the uh, the world, what it is at the current moment. You uh, will feel good after watching yeah, Princess you're Bride. you're going to feel fantastic after Princess Bride. So, so David... I think that brings us to the end here at the double feature. It does. It does. And it brings us to the final week of our kind of politics month, quote unquote. Well, you would think, but we got one more. Yeah, we do have one more that is going to be a lot more fun than the first two weeks of this month. And yes. it's kind of continuing on this uh, fantastic journey that is uh, graced us this week. It's a little bit more based in reality, but is still you know, a hair more based in reality. Yeah, <laughs> especially for one of these films, <laughs> just a hair. Uh, we're going to be doing the one thing that all Americans can probably agree on right now and say, let's give a big middle finger to all the communist, fascist dictators of the world. Um, we're going to be watching The Death of Stalin and the interview this coming week. Yes, I'm pretty this is, is going to make you feel really good, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. But, David, other than that, where can, where can people watch more of our stuff? What else are we doing? What else is going on? Well, what are we, what are we doing? We are on YouTube at In The Frame. We should have some at this. At the point of this release, we should have finally released some of these videos. The video uh, essays we've been talking about for, like, for, 10 you episodes. Know, that we've been stringing you along for months are finally becoming a thing and we're going to have more on the way. Uh, this is a new thing for Dean and I, and it's been a lot of feeling things out, but um, even at the moment of this recording, not having finished it, uh, I'm very proud of the work, work we're putting into it and um, hopefully you enjoy it. You can also find us wherever podcasts can be found, uh, mm -hmm. including Spotify, Google podcasts, radio public and others, including you will be able to find in the links of this episode, our anchor link, which should be able to take you to any one of those podcast websites. If you aren't just on Spotify, like the rest of humanity, um, Dean, where can they find us on Instagram? If you wanted to find us on Instagram and follow all our lovely social media, you can follow us on the double underscore feature podcast. There you can all that's up. on Instagram. Oh, so yeah. Oh, sorry. Keep, keep going. I'll stop talking now. Okay. 
Uh, now I feel bad. Uh, <laughs> it's fine, dude. I, there... I, dude, I ramble so much. You just cut me off. It's fine. Uh, well, there you can keep up with everything that we're doing. Dean's lovely girlfriend is running that for us. Uh, and we thank her for that again. And until next week, is there anything else, Dean? Uh, other than that, you should probably check out our other podcasts, which are yes, we... Too Obscure for TV and... Yes. Oh, and I also do another podcast yes. called the Film Club Podcast with my lovely girlfriend we mentioned earlier. Right. Go watch that one. They're fun. Film Club Podcast. Check it out. And check out Too Obscure for TV. We should have had uh, a second episode come out some sometime soon. So. Yes look out for that it's it's very enjoyable we have a guest our first guest on that one thomas thank you thomas mm-hmm. um but now i think that is truly it for this week on the double feature that's it at the double feature today we'll hope to see you next week for the death of stalin and the interview david Peace. the chocolate bars and the candy so let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat